Hello again, fight fans. Welcome to the Neutral Corner, episode number 152 for the week of December 22nd, 2018. I am your host, Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. Got a lot to go over today. This is probably going to be the last episode of the Neutral Corner for 2018. Uh, you know, it's the end of the year when we got some fights coming up this weekend. We'll do a full preview of everything. Actually, we got some fights going up until the end of the year, including New Year's Eve. But um, guys, it's the end of the year. News is starting to slow down. I think we're going to take a couple weeks off and get started back up in January. That doesn't mean I won't be doing videos. I've been doing some some rant videos, some year end stuff, some year end awards, maybe a pound for pound list to end the year off. And I was thinking of maybe doing an end of year, maybe live fight party or something. Well, there's no fights, but just a, a live party chatting with you guys and maybe a Q&A, something like that. So uh, I'll keep you posted on that. But I just want to let you know ahead of time, this is probably it for TNC for this year. We got over the 150 episode mark this year. We're probably going to get to 200 episodes by the end of next year. That's awesome. That's freaking awesome, man. This thing continues to grow. And uh, 2019 is going to be the year where we start doing it live. We're almost there. We got a couple more pieces of technology to get. We've been doing some testing, Tiffany and I, and we are almost there where this show is going to be live Monday evenings or night or maybe even afternoon, depending on what part of the world you live in. But uh, more about that soon. Very, very soon. I promise you guys. All right. My fee for episode number 152 is simple. Get over to iTunes iTunes, look for The Neutral Corner, Montero Unboxing, do the search, find me on there, find The Neutral Corner Podcast, follow it, subscribe, please drop a rating, please drop a review. If you've only done a rating so far, do a review this week. Go on there and it could be one sentence, guys, it could be two sentences, whatever, just really quickly leave a review. If you haven't done either, please do both. If you've already done it, if you've already done a rating and a review and you've subscribed and that's where you listen to us every week, please just tell three of your friends, whether you post it on your, you, you tweet it out, you post it on your Facebook, you message, you know, at, if you tweet it out, at a couple of your boxing friends that you aren't sure follow the show yet. I want to blow up iTunes a little bit these last couple weeks of the year. I'm going to ask you guys to do that as a, Holiday present and end of year present to me and also as your fee, your end of year fee for the neutral corner, okay? It's all about iTunes, so please, please, please do that. I'm asking for just a few minutes of your time to do that, okay? For those of you who, who can get over to patreon.com slash Montero Unboxing, if you want to tip the show just to say, hey, man, I appreciate the work you're putting in, here's a dollar a month. Okay, here's here's four dollars a month, a dollar per episode, whatever it is, anything you could give greatly appreciated goes right back into the show, into the technology that we're investing in the show to take it to higher levels in 2019 and beyond. If you want to get a Montero unboxing T-shirt, hit us up Montero unboxing at gmail.com. All right. And we'll tell you how to do that. All right, guys, let's get into news and notes and everything else for TNC 152. All right, so obviously the big news last week was more dealing with the PBC. Premier Boxing Champions announces a three-year agreement with ITV. That's a British channel. That's a network TV channel over there. So it's kind of like a CBS, ABC, or whatever here in the USA. 15 televised events a year. And that will include, obviously, some cards in the UK, but it will also include some fights here in the United States as well. So uh, PBC taking their brand, and look, they, they've represented some fighters from the UK. I mean, James DeGale comes to mind, uh, several other guys, I think uh, Lee Selby. So um, this is smart. And for PBC, which is very, very much an American boxing platform, American boxing entity, the overwhelming majority of their events take place in America, and I'm talking 90 plus percent. Uh, their, their, their fighters, their management, their staff is American. It's, a, it's probably the most American platform there is, maybe up there with Golden Boy. But uh, for them to invest 
in the UK market like this. Number one, it's a big win for them. It's, it's a great thing. I think it's also good for British boxing to see more American talent. But it also just shows you how much the UK has really become a major, major player in the boxing business globally. When you have an American platform, you think PBC and you think Al Heyman and all the people uh, related, you know, the Watsons and it related to that whole entity. They used to be strictly HBO. Then they jumped ship over in 2013 and went strictly Showtime and, you know, American television. Uh, they had deals with all sorts of American networks, but they're very much an American entity. You did not see their fights overseas. For them to have a TV deal now in the UK, it shows you just how much the UK is a major player in the boxing business. So this is just uh, an exciting time, man. And look, good for PBC. I hope that they put on some good fights and they make some good quality American cards available to the UK audience. But more than that, I hope that they really truly invest and they put on some cards over in the UK. That's what they should do here. And if that does happen, look for PBC and Uncle Al to start signing more UK fighters. And I think that's a good thing for boxing, so long as we get the good, we get the good matchups. We get those fighters fighting the best guys and vice versa. And hopefully we see more of these PBC American fighters willing to make the trip across the pond and fight in the UK. It only makes sense. There's big, big business to be made over in the UK. You look at Errol Spence, the, the best moment of his entire career to date was when he traveled over to the UK. And you saw the crowd that they did for that fight between him and uh, Kel Brook. So look, that is what should happen as part of this deal. We'll keep an eye out. We shall see. Also, some ratings information, and I already tweeted out about this. I'm sure you guys have seen all the posts and everything. Um, I know it's a week after the fact, but it needs to be discussed, man. Lomachenko Pedraza, the uh, fight averaged over 2 million viewers on ESPN. It's the second highest watched fight as far as actual ratings, live ratings in, American, uh, in America this year. Second only behind when Terrence Crawford fought Benavidez, that averaged 2.2 million. That actually peaked at 2.8 million. And that was in October. So you look at the trajectory of ESPN boxing, and this all falls back upon some of the things I talked about last week with HBO going out with a whimper. And you saw uh, Loma Pedraza in New York and just the energy and everything with that card and the ratings. And you contrast that to what HBO is doing in Los Angeles with uh, Brecos and uh, Lopes and that card, which I think did 300,000 views or something like that. For Lomachenko to do 2 million viewers against a, an unknown fighter by you know most casual sports fans in America have no idea who Pedraza is, right? Only diehard boxing fans do. You guys got to remember, man, we're right in the, in the heart of college football, the NBA, the NHL, the NFL now is starting to have Saturday night ga games. The last few weeks of the year, the NFL has Saturday night games. You got all that going on in sports, and Lomachenko does a rating like that. And then you go back just a few months to October, Terrence Crawford did a huge rating against Benavidez, another guy who's not widely known by casual sports fans, right? You, you look back to earlier this year in May, when Lobachenko fought uh, Jorge Linares, I think that did an average of 1.7, maybe 1.8 million. So things are trending upward over at ESPN. So the top rank on ESPN thing, we it's working out and it's growing and it's it's becoming better and bigger every single time. And Lomachenko and Crawford are becoming stars. They are the consensus number one, number two, pound for pound. Some people think it's Canelo or, you know, but for the most part, most platforms, including Boxing Monthly and others, you got Lomachenko and, and Crawford right there. And, and by, for the record, um, uh, Boxing Monthly will be putting an updated uh, pound for pound list together. Uh, we just kind of all uh, submitted our, our lists to, to, uh, to everybody and they're, you know, putting all that together and you guys will see that soon on the site. So look out for that. 
Also, uh, Ring Magazine is going to be doing their year-end ratings and, and everything else, their year-end awards, and I was a big part of that. I, I wrote some of the year-end awards for three specific awards. Uh, I was tasked with writing uh, the winner and just giving a brief uh, story and description of all that, so you'll see all that coming out too. So pound-for-pound pound, you know, lists and all that are coming out uh, on Boxing Monthly and, and also on Ring too. So keep an eye out for that. But look, Lomachenko, Crawford, right there, 1A, 1B. And in terms of the ratings they're doing, 1A, 1B. So, I mean, that's a big deal. Top rank, I say it all the time. They've been in this business for decades. They know what they're doing. This ESPN deal, in a lot of ways, was the antithesis of what PBC did on network TV back in like 2015, 2016. And this thing, this deal has real teeth. It has real roots. And it is growing. It's an exciting time. And now with HBO bowing out, uh, man, I, I just look for the ESPN ratings to continue to climb. The only concern, and this is a big concern, is who the hell are Lomachenko and Crawford going to fight? Now, there are some opponents for 2019. They, you know, there are guys lined up that top rank can, can get. So you're going to see them have fun. And look, if they're doing ratings like this against Pedraza and Benavidez, I don't think the opponent is the most important thing. But after a while, they're going to need that marquee opponent to take things to the next level. So that will become a concern for them. We'll see what happens. But Lomachenko Pedraza, over 2 million viewers in the midst of a flood of sports going on right now in the United States. It's like the, the hot season for sports. And the holidays, all that. I mean, that's, man, that's, that's damn impressive. Just had to say it. All right, guys, let's get into the review of what happened last week. All right, so last week we had uh, big action on Friday and Saturday here in the U.S. of A., uh, starting Friday night, December 14th, in Corpus Christi, Texas, at the American Bank Center. It was top rank on ESPN+. Plus. This was not on the network. This was uh, just on the app, strictly on the app. And in the main event, it was a rematch between Gilberto Zerto Ramirez and Jesse Hart out of Philadelphia. For Zerto, this was the fifth defense of his WBO super middleweight title. And he improves to 39-0 with a majority decision win over Jesse Hart, who drops to 25-2. The scores were 115-113 twice, and one judge had a draw. I thought those scores were too close. And I thought, you know, some of the ESPN commentary crew had this almost like a draw, like really, really close. And Hart, after the fight, said the judges got it wrong and he felt he won. I saw some people on Twitter bitching about the decision. And look... You guys know me, I love going after judges when they have shitty scorecards. I'm one of the few guys in boxing media who will routinely mention the judge's name, uh, at mention, if I'm tweeting, at mention, the sanctioning organizations involved, the promoters involved. I put these people on blast. That's why they can't fucking stand me. But there is no controversy in this decision. If anything, the controversy was they gave Hart too much credit. I scored this 116-112 for Ramirez, who I've been highly critical of. It's not like, you know, of course I'll be called a shill for him now, but I've been highly critical of this kid and his lack of opposition. And I actually thought that Hart had a real chance in this rematch. Hart just didn't do enough. And for a guy who's been clamoring for this rematch for the past year or so, uh, I just, I expected more of an effort from him. The work was inconsistent. There was little offensive blasts and furies, but... Man, you got to do more than have little five-second bursts here and there. You got to do more than one punch at a time, which is, that's most of what it was from Hart. And you sure as hell can't let yourself be outworked in the championship rounds by a guy with one freaking arm, which Hart let himself be outworked by Zerto. And Zerto, I guess, hurt his elbow in the eighth round, uh, but kept going. And in the 12th round, man, this guy went balls to the wall. And almost had Hart out of there. And had he had full power in his left hand, I think he would have got Hart out of there in the final round. You could see Zerto wanted to make an impression, a lasting impression. And he did. I mean, this, this is the type of thing, you know, in that final round where you build fans. People remember shit like that. When you, when you clearly have an arm injury on your lead hand, 
You know, that's your your poking, prodding, jabbing hand arm that you're trying to get distance with and everything. Man, he just dove in and started teeing off with the right hand. And if you're hurt and you know you got a one-armed man in front of you, how the hell is he hitting you with that arm? Move away from that right hand and get in front of that left hand. I just thought Hart completely let this thing slip away, man, and he had a real chance. Hart just isn't on the level of Gilberto Ramirez. Now, is Zerto the top super middleweight in the world? I don't know. He's among the top three or so, definitely. I mean, he's proven that, but has he proven himself as the top guy? I don't think so. I think Callum Smith has so far. But Zerto's in the discussion. And Hart's just a level below that. You know, he, Hart makes a lot of fundamental errors. He kind of does the bow and arrow thing when he jabs, which is something that, I mean, that's a, that's a really amateurish thing that should be cleaned up in the gym when someone's a kid. And remember, his dad, Cyclone Hart, was a great boxer. So for, for Jesse Hart to have that bad habit, that's really surprising to me. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, imagine when you're holding a bow and arrow and you pull the arrow back as you extend your left hand forward, you know, if you get the bow and arrow right in front of you, and then you pull it back. Some, some guys, you see it a lot with kids in the gym, when they jab, their right hand goes back. And it almost looks like they're getting ready to shoot a bow and arrow. It's just kind of how it looks. And Hart does that almost every time he jabs. It's one of the worst things you can do because you can be timed with a left hook, with a looping left hook. And, you know, Zerto, again, hurt his left elbow or else he may have caught Hart late in the fight with that. It's just something you shouldn't do. It's, if you're sparring a guy who does that, you love it. You almost start to invite him to jab you because you know exactly how to time it after a while. And you can nail him with uh, uppercuts, 45s. You could even come over the top of his jab with a looping right hand after a while. It's just something that right away you know you're dealing with a guy who hasn't sparred a lot. And Hart does that almost every time he throws a jab. Anyway, all right, punch numbers. Zerto lands 202 of 703 punches, 28% accuracy. Hart lands 102 punches out of 525, 19% accuracy. Now, I know these punch numbers aren't as accurate as, they're not 100% accurate, but they're actually more accurate than a lot of you give uh, CompuBox credit for. CompuBox has done comprehensive studies, and they're better than 90% accurate, guys. So when you have, again, Hart was just clamoring for this rematch, right? He really wanted it. He gets out thrown by about 180 punches and outlanded by 100 punches. How the hell does that happen if you're really hungry and want this rematch? Also, the 12th round, Zerto lands 29 of 93 punches, Hart lands 7 of 31. In the 12th round of a fight, of a rematch that you've been bitching for for a year, you don't go out like that. I will give Hart this much credit, though. He was hurt in that 12th round, and he came back to over the last, like, 15 seconds and finished hard. But just to be outworked like that, damn. Uh, Zerto landed more in nine of the 12 rounds. He more than doubled the number of landed punches. More than doubled the number of landed punches in six of the 12 rounds. So, again, I repeat the scorecards had this thing too close. Zerto won eight rounds to four. You could even argue nine rounds to three. Uh, for Zerto, great story. I give him a, just as far as his, you know, where he comes from and how he got to where he is now. Um, Good-looking kid, exciting, you know, uh, fun style, but lack of knockout power. He he does not punch with knockout power, and especially as a Mexican fighter. That's going to cost him uh, fans. And so for him, the way he's going to win over fans is by showing heart and determination, which I thought he did in this fight. Now he just needs a top opponent. He needs to fight Benavidez, Smith, somebody with a name. He needs to travel over to the UK and even fight a guy like Groves or something. He's got to start to fight bigger names. That's how he's going to build his brand. Right now, look. You, you put the Jesse Hart thing to bed. You got an injury to take care of. I'm sure you're going to want a, a, a layup, tune-up fight after you know your surgery and everything, your recovery. Okay. But by the end of next year, he's got to unify titles. The, the, the schedule has been too easy. Got to unify titles. It is time. He has 39 professional fights. Okay. 
Also on this card, Los Angeles 140-pound prospect Arnold Barboza Jr. improves to 20-0 with seven knockouts, scores a unanimous decision win over 10 rounds against Manuel Demarius Lopez. That's the thing about Barboza, even worse than Ramirez, complete lack of KO power. Just everything, he punches very straight. He throws in combination, nice offensive variety in terms of the types of punching, but it's all arm punches. Does not turn over on anything, just doesn't have knockout power. And at 140 pounds, this kid will eventually be at 147. That's gonna cost him against the best fighters. Maybe he's ready to fight uh, some of the titles there, like Ramirez or, uh, well, Progray's in the tournament. You know, he can't find anybody in the tournament right now, but maybe he's ready for a guy like Ramirez on ESPN. Why not? Let's, let's make that fight because um, Jose Carlos Ramirez is who I'm talking about. He's with top rank, fights on ESPN. That's an easy fight to make. Do I think he's going to win that fight? No. He just doesn't have the power to keep Ramirez or any of the top fighters at 140 off of him. But a stylish fighter, uh, looks real good, throws a lot of punches. So, yeah, let's see the fight. I just think he's going to fall a little short of the elite level. Okay, Saturday, December 15th. Um, over in the UK, Daniel Dubois was supposed to face Razvan Kojanu, but he had to pull out. He was sick with the flu. And look, we've seen this in a few fights recently where guys have pulled out because they're sick. It's that time of year. Towards, you know, the fall, the end of the year, guys get sick. It happens. And, you know, sometimes it's smarter to not fight sick. I've seen a lot of guys fight sick. And um, one that just jumped to mind was Kelly Pavlik was sick as a dog when he fought Bernard Hopkins. Did that really have that much bearing on the fight? I don't know. I don't think, I think Hopkins still would have won regardless but if Pavlik was 100% strong and healthy, maybe he would have been more powerful in that fight. Maybe he would have had more energy. Still probably would have lost, but probably shouldn't have went through. So it's smart for Dubois to pull out, especially at this stage of his career. This is just a, you know, he's still a prospect, but a little bit of a buzzkill. Over in the Ukraine in Kiev, Artem Delakian improved to 18-0 with 13 knockouts, scored a TKO 6 win for the second defense of his WBA flyweight title. Even though he's Armenian uh, of Armenian descent, he was raised in the Ukraine, he's a Ukrainian citizen. Delakian is part of the four Ukrainian kings right now. You know, you gotta think about it. Everyone thinks about the Ukrainian champions, they think Usyk, Lomachenko, Vozdik, but Delakian's part of that. There's really four kings right now and they span really from the lower weight classes all the way up. So it's, it's kind of interesting. You got a flyweight, a lightweight, a uh, light heavyweight, and a cruiserweight. Uh, the Ukrainians are getting things done in 2018. Pound for pound, as far as countries go, Ukraine probably had the best 2018 in the boxing universe. In New Zealand, Joseph Parker scored a KO3 win over Alexander Flores. Back in the win column, busy. He was a busy fighter in 2018, which I like for heavyweights. I wish we'd see more of that. Uh, did fairly well against um, some top fighters. Lost, but, you know, had some moments against some top fighters over the last year. But to put this opponent in perspective, Flores was knocked out by Charles Martin in four rounds back in 2014. So Parker's back in the win column, but this win isn't that big of a deal. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Let's go to New York. Madison Square Garden. Matchroom and Golden Boy Promotions on the zone. And this was a pretty loaded card as far as names and fights, although buzzkill because the co-main between David Lemieux and Toriano Johnson was canceled. Lemieux couldn't make weight, had severe dehydration, was hospitalized. Definitely cannot make 160 pounds anymore. This is a problem he's had in recent years with several fights. The dude just needs to move to 168. He likes to have that size and power advantage at 160, but he can't make the weight anymore. It's killing him, literally killing him. He needs to move to 168. It's kind of a buzzkill for Golden Boy Promotions and Oscar De La Hoya because De La Hoya said in several interviews before this fight, hey, we don't want Gennady Golovkin or... Daniel Jacobs for May 4th next year at T-Mobile. And I'm telling you guys right now, it was going to be announced pretty soon after this weekend 
that Canelo and David Lemieux were going to fight May 4th at T-Mobile Arena. They were probably going to wait till after the holidays, but that they wanted David Lemieux to knock out Toriano Johnson, which he probably would have late in that fight, and it would have been highlight reel type of stoppage. Canelo obviously dominated fielding. We'll talk more about that in a second. But the plan was to have them two fight May 4th and then to get, depending on what Triple G did, if he went with the zone, maybe him late next year. But I don't know if Gennady is going to go with the zone right now. I really don't. If it wasn't Gennady, it was going to be Daniel Jacobs back at MSG late next year. That was going to be the plan. And now Lemieux has blown that all up. Although, Canelo just did fight at 168. He technically holds a quote-unquote title, but my left nut weighs more than that title in terms of importance and relevance in the in boxing world. Um, but still, for the fans and for marketing, he does hold a title at 168. They still might make the fight with Lemieux at 168. I just think that's a really hard sell after this guy was literally hospitalized because he couldn't make weight. Had he made weight and beat Toriano Johnson, you probably would have saw Canelo defend his 168 piece of shit title against Lemieux, and Lemieux would have been moving up in weight to challenge for a title, and that's how they were going to market that thing. I think that shit's blown up right now. I don't know how you make a big fight in Vegas between a guy, you know, Canelo, and a guy who couldn't even make weight and didn't fight, who was hospitalized for dehydration. You just, you can't. Anyway... Uh, before I get to the main event, uh, undercard, Tevin Farmer wins a unanimous decision over 12 rounds against Francisco Fonseca, second defense of his IBF 130-pound title. Calls out Gervonta Davis afterwards. Hey, let's see it. I'd love to see that. Can it happen? I don't know, but I'd love to see it. Katie Taylor defends her unified lightweight titles against Eva Wallstrom over 10 rounds. Was really going for the KO late. You know, Katie Taylor might might just be the best female fighter in the world right now. You have to give the top rating to Cecilia Brekus. Obviously, she's held the Unified Welterweight Championship forever and a day, and she has the most accomplishments. But Katie Taylor, you know, as far as uh, amateurs was in the Olympics, comes out as a pro, and within what? A dozen fights or so, not even a dozen fights. I think she's what eleven and zero right now, something like that. She's unified titles, and she's fairly entertaining for a female fighter. At least goes for the KO. Highly skilled. Man, what if she can move up to one forty and Breakus can move down to one forty because she's at one forty seven, and they both fight in the middle of the catchweight. Why can't they do that? I'd love to see something like that. I think a fight like that moves the needle. And if you're Breakus. You'd probably rather do that than move up seven pounds and fight Clarissa Shields because Clarissa Shields is a lot bigger and stronger. Uh, but, uh, you know, I know Katie Taylor would definitely be open to that. But she also called out uh, Serrano. I'm trying to think. Is it Amanda Serrano? There's two Serrano sisters. She called. She already beat the, the lesser of the two, and she called out the better of the two. So maybe the two of them will fight next year. We'll see. Saddam Ali scores a unanimous decision win over Mauricio Herrera, who looked pretty damn old in this fight and needs to hang him up. Is Ali really a top contender at welterweight right now? I don't think so, but he's probably going to wiggle his way into another title shot. Definitely doesn't belong at 154. Definitely looks better at 147, but um, stays busy, grabs a W here. Ryan Garcia scores a five-round knockout over Braulio Rodriguez, who kind of look like Gollum with a fro in this fight. He's just kind of crazy and all over the place. Um, kind of goofy and silly, but did what he, you know, was trying to just survive in this fight. Garcia, a lot of people are giving this guy shit because it took him five rounds to get rid of this dude. Look, Rodriguez was being crazy awkward and doing anything and everything he could do to survive. I give Garcia credit for taking his time and systematically letting the KO come to him. That, to me, showed poise, and I, I thought it was a good performance. Did he move up in, in my mythical ratings for the lightweight division at all with this win? Hell no. It did nothing for him in that regard, but he fought on you know at MSG, big stage, big card because it involved Canelo, 
and he systematically broke down a really awkward, crazy-looking opponent and got the W. So good for him. Also, Lamont Roach, unanimous decision win in a 10-rounder over Alberto Mercado. He fought at 130. Can we get Garcia and Roach to fight next at 135? Can we see those two fight? Golden Boy promotes both of them. They're undefeated prospects. Why the hell not? That'd be interesting. Okay, main event. Canelo Alvarez, KO3 win over Rocky Field and wins the regular WBA 168-pound title. Obviously, Callum Smith is probably the best super middleweight right now. He won the World Boxing Super Series tournament. I think he's earned that rating as the number one guy. And he has, I believe, the super WBA title. Guys, you got to be careful because now Canelo Alvarez and his team and Golden Boy Promotions are promoting him as a three-division titleist. And that is pure, unadulterated bullshit. Legitimate titleist at 154. Uh, legitimate titleist now at 160. Whether you agree with the decision he got with over Gennady Golovkin in the rematch or not. Uh, you know, at, maybe it was a draw. Maybe you had Golovkin by a point or two. It was very competitive. He officially gets the W. I think he's earned the right to call himself an elite level middleweight and an elite level middleweight with world titles at 160 pounds. So I call him a two division titleist for sure, but three division titleist. No, is Rocky fielding a top 10 at super middleweight? Everyone's shitting on him right now and calling him a bum and this and that. I don't like calling any fighter a bum. I think that's too harsh, but if Rocky fielding is a top 10, for, for the record, we're taking him out of the top 10 at ring. We voted on it this weekend. He's getting replaced. Uh, he will be out of the top 10. With this one win, you can make an argument Canelo Alvarez is in the top five of the division. But Rocky Fielding at best was number nine or 10 going in, and he's now out of the top 10 at super middleweight. And super middleweight is a relatively weak division. You have a few good young fighters at the top who need to face each other to prove who's really the best. But after about the top four or five guys, it's a weak division. Put it to you this way. Chris Eubank Jr., with all his flaws, is in the top 10. A guy at, with that level of, of just the fundamental flaws and everything else, would he be in the top 10 at welterweight, at middleweight, at cruiserweight? You know, you think of some of these stronger divisions, he wouldn't be in the top 10. And he is. He's a legitimate top 10 right now at 168. So that tells you how weak this division is, where Canelo could come in, stomp this dude, and already be in the top five. If you rate Canelo at super middleweight, he's probably number four or five right now. That tells you how weak the division is. So anyway, I don't want to call Fielding a bum, but he had faced one elite-level fighter in his career prior to this, and that was Callum Smith, and he was blown out in the round. He had faced one you know, uh, B-level type of opponent in Tyron Zwiege in Germany in July. That's a good solid win for him because he went on the road and got that W. So good for him. And that, again, that probably put him at number nine or 10 in the division. But Zwiege or Zuj, I've heard it said both ways, uh, is not an elite level super middleweight by any means. He's, you know, a standard protected German fighter. And uh, again, good win for Fielding. But the only elite-level fighters he has faced are Callum Smith and Canelo Alvarez, who he didn't even last four combined rounds with. And he was dropped multiple times by both guys. That just tells you the level this dude is at. Size matters. And that's why I thought at first, hey, maybe this, this fight goes rounds just because of Fielding's size. And maybe we see Canelo pull back the way he did against Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. Part of me wondered if he'd pull that move, but he didn't. You know, against Chavez Jr., he did not want to risk injury because that fight with Golovkin was being announced that night. Did not want to screw it up. So he pulled back against Chavez. He could have got Chavez out of there, but you could see him holding back. Against Fielding, he held nothing back. There's no fight signed right now for me. They wanted to do Lemieux, and I told you about that, but... That wasn't official or anything like that. Um, so we just let it fly, man. And, you know, Chavez Jr. probably knocks out fielding too. So that just tells you the level this guy's at. Um, 
So yeah, size matters, but Fielding just isn't very good. His corner was atrocious. His game plan was atrocious. You're basically like a foot taller. You have much longer arms. Why are you bending down into shots and bending your punches? His arms should have been straight out like a pole. And he just should have been jabbing the living hell out of Canelo. And anytime Canelo got close, he should have wrapped his ass up, pinned his arms down on Canelo's so that Canelo couldn't get off to the body. You knew exactly what Canelo was going to do. And you, you, you kind of, your game plan fed right into it. Just the most bizarre game plan. And some of the corner advice, you know, between rounds was among the worst corner advice I've ever heard. Just really, really bad. I don't know what the hell that team was thinking. Just horrible. But he made over a million dollars. So, you know, he made a career high payday. Anyway, um, you know, just to put things in perspective, Jesse Hart would convincingly beat Fielding, in my opinion. He, he'd conv- maybe knock him out. Maybe Jesse Hart would knock him out. But he'd certainly decision him. With all the flaws I talked about earlier in this episode that Jesse Hart has, he pretty decisively beats Rocky Fielding. And I again, Rocky Fielding's not a bum. He's the top 20, top 15 at super middleweight. It's just a weak division. And he's just not very good. He's not world level. All right, so it is what it is. Okay, uh, one last comment about this thing, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it. I kind of tempted to do a rant video, so let me know. But the DAZN commentary crew, do you guys want to hear me do an extended kind of rant video on it? Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's beating a dead horse. But I tweeted about this during the fight. They have some guys on that commentary crew that are legitimate boxing people that have a background covering boxing. Brian Kenny does a good job. He worked at ESPN for a long time. He did Friday Night Fights. Uh, he knows boxing, and he, generally speaking, does a good job. I don't agree with everything he says. He does a good job. This Kay Adams girl from the NFL Network, I don't know why she's there other than the fact that she's cute and bubbly and has a fun personality. She obviously doesn't know shit about boxing. She's trying to learn, but there's a term that is used for for certain, (laughs) you know, I'm not even going to use it. It just, I think demographics are playing a role in that hire. Okay, let's just go there. Chris Mannix, covered boxing for Sports Illustrated. One of the last guys who covered boxing at a major sports publication. Although Sports Illustrated has kind of long been past its best it's kind of the HBO championship boxing of sports platforms. Uh, but he does have a background. He does know boxing. I don't think he knows boxing as well as he leads on. I think that he gets a lot of things wrong. But for the most part, he, I mean, he has a boxing podcast that's pretty popular and successful. He does a good job. However, he's probably better behind the camera as a writer, as a radio guy, a podcaster than in front of the camera. Comes off a little abrasive in his interviews, and um, I, I don't know. It just I'm willing to give him some more time to develop. I'm still 50-50 on him. Sugar Ray Leonard. Love Sugar Ray Leonard as a fighter. He might be top 10 all-time great pound for pound. Probably is one of the top 10 greatest fighters ever. I think that a lot of people actually underrate him on a pound for pound all-time great uh, level. However, he is just a... Horrible commentator. Horrible. And again, I say that as a guy that has nothing but respect for Sugar Ray Leonard. Wonderful, beautiful human being. Great fighter. Shit as a commentator. And then there's these two radio guys from Brooklyn, AK and Bess. I have no idea who the hell they are. I looked them up on Twitter. They have about 82 followers. So that tells you all you need to know there. Not that... Twitter followers says everything about you. I'm just saying if these guys had worked in the boxing industry for a while, they had been writers, they had uh, some kind of boxing podcast, something, they'd have a following. They, you know, they'd have a, a, um, a library of work to present. And I don't see that when I look. I, I, again, I have no idea who they are. So I looked them up on Twitter. I found their Twitter profiles and that's what I saw. They don't even have 100 followers. So these guys are obviously new to the game. They must have known somebody in the right place, and they got the job. But overall, the whole DAZN commentary crew is kind of a clusterfuck, and it needs to get better. 
Let me know what you guys think about that and if you want to hear me talk about it more. All right, let's preview what's coming up over the last two weeks of the year. Okay, this Saturday, December 22nd, over in the UK in Manchester Arena, one of the real boxing hotspots in the world. You think, I mean, just over the last decade or so, there's been some great fights and some great events there. It's always a really fun atmosphere at Manchester Arena. Well, on ESPN Plus here in the USA, we're going to get this fight. This is a Frank Warren card. Josh Warrington going up against Carl, or actually, uh, Carl Frampton ch challenging Josh Warrington in the first defense of Warrington's IBF uh, featherweight title that he won off Lee Selby by split decision in May. Warrington's undefeated as a pro, 27-0, but only six knockouts. Frampton, former fighter of the year, I think he's won uh, titles now, what, two divisions? Or he's fought in two divisions, 26-1, 15 knockouts. So he is the title challenger here, but I favor him in this fight. Uh, although Warrington is a few years younger, couple inches longer, couple inches taller, longer, Frampton is 3-0 since his one lone defeat to Leo Santa Cruz in January of 2017. Warrington barely got by Lee Selby. You know, it was a split decision. Selby was fighting with one eye. You remember how his eye closed up early in that fight. And he barely got by Kiko Martinez, an old Kiko Martinez in 2017. He had a majority decision win over Kiko Martinez. Frampton fought Martinez as well in 2014, dropped him and nearly shut him out. So you just look at the quality of opposition here. Uh, Frampton's fought, faced much better guys. I just think there's more levels to him. I think this will be a fun fight. Warrington is a tough, rugged guy. He's kind of a smaller Sean Porter in the way he fights. He's a smaller UK version of Sean Porter and now he's very rough. You can get headbutted and, and cut fighting him. He's gonna bowl in on you. It's gonna make life difficult for Frampton, but skills pay the bills. I just think Frampton's gonna grab this title, grab another title here. In the O2 Arena in London, we have Frank Warren's main rival, Eddie Hearn, Matchroom putting on a card and of course that will be on the zone here in the states it'll be on skybox office over there in the uk in the main event dillian white is rematching Derek chisora both of these guys fought in december of 2016 both are have fought four times since then in that first fight white scored a split decision win it was a fight of the year contender for 2016 it was a good heavyweight scrap a lot of action but i just look at what both guys have done since then, okay? It's been basically two years. White is 4-0, and that includes wins over Hellenius, quality heavyweight, Lucas Brown, quality heavyweight, although he's pretty much shot by the time White got him, still not trash. And then Joseph Parker, who is, is a good quality top 15 or so heavyweight himself. And then I look at Chisora, He's 3-1 since. He did lose, I think, a split decision to a journeyman-level fighter, beat a couple journeyman-level fighters. Then he faced Carlos Taco in his last fight. That was a good win. But overall, the opposition both guys have faced, I think White has faced better opposition and overall looked better against it than uh, Chisora has. So as far as the, as far as the trajectory of their careers... I think White's trending upward and Chisora downward. And I think White is going to get this rematch. And I think it's not going to be a split decision. I think he's going to clearly decisively win. It's going to be competitive. It's not going to be a domination. It's not, it's not, going, to, it's not going to be a one-sided route or anything. But I think White is going to decisively, definitively win this rematch. Both of these guys fight at their best in the 240s. I'm curious to see what they weigh in at. That could tell us a lot. Depending on what we see during the weigh-in, I might change my pick. So the weigh-in matters here, as it often does with the big boys. Also on this card, Christopher Rosales, the second defense of his WBC flyweight title going up against Charlie Edwards. And then here in the USA at Barclays Center in Brooklyn, PBC on Fox. I talked about PBC in the, you know, the news and notes portion of this uh, episode. And, you know, they just did this deal with uh, ITV over in the UK. 
Well, they also earlier this year announced deals with Showtime and Fox. So PBC making moves this year. And uh, it's interesting, all the little network deals coming together, right? And we just saw Canelo, who announced with Golden Boy a huge deal, an 11-fight deal with DAZN, make his DAZN debut in New York last week. And it was a shit fight and everything else. The card itself was kind of lackluster, top to bottom. Losing that Lemieux-Johnson fight hurt the card. But it was just mismatch after mismatch, right? But that was the first you know, the first card on this big deal that they put together. And that's generally speaking what you see. Sometimes these guys start with a bang, but very, very often with a big, big deal like this, it's kind of a feature um, showcase type of fight. You get showcase kind of matchups. And that's what you're getting here with PBC on Fox. This is the first uh, fight deal. You know, they just have this big network deal that they put together. This is the first card of that deal. So Jermel Charlo is fighting Tony Harrison, defending his WBC junior middleweight title. You guys know what I've said about Harrison a million times if you follow me. Uh, Harrison, awesome fighter for four or five rounds. Built for the amateurs. For the amateur system, Harrison is the goods. But professional boxing championship fights go 12 rounds. And this guy just absolutely falls apart about four or five rounds into a fight. After that, falls apart. Charlo is going to decapitate this dude. It's going to be competitive for a couple rounds and then Charlo will wear him down. Now, Harrison might get lucky and just get caught up on the ropes or something or you know, a couple of flash knockdowns or whatever and get out of this fight that way. But if he really tries to stay in there, he's going to get flattened. It's going to be a Tiafimo uh, Lopez slash Mason Menard you know, type of knockout that we saw a couple weeks ago on uh, on uh, ESPN. That's what we're going to get here. If this thing, the later this fight goes, Harrison's going to get really, really badly KO'd because he's just not the guy that can go past four or five rounds. It just He's just not built for the professional boxing game. He does know how to survive. He does have skills. So again, maybe he gets a corner stoppage, a ref stoppage, Something like that, a mercy kind of stoppage. If not, it could get scary. Now, Jermall Charlo is fighting Matt Korobov. He was supposed to be fighting Willie Monroe Jr., but he had an adverse finding in a VADA test, a sample taken by VADA. They tested adverse finding. We still don't know what drug was found or anything. Are we going to find out? I hope so. We deserve to know. But so Willie Monroe Jr. is out. Charlo is fighting Korobov. For the interim WBC middleweight championship. Now, on paper, Korobov is an upgrade from Monroe Jr., especially at this stage of Jr.'s career. But, this is a big but, Matvey Korobov has only fought once in the past two years, and it was a six rounder against a journeyman. So, I'm not so sure this is an upgrade. It just depends on what Korobov has been doing. One fight, six rounds over the last two years. That's a lot of rust. And you're going up against a guy who's really hungry, hits really hard, and doesn't do drug testing. So um, outside of Mike Coppinger, uh, everyone else is kind of suspicious of the Charlo brothers because not necessarily accusing anybody of doing anything, but it is very, very suspicious that they're not volunteering for any type of testing. The only testing they have done is USADA, which is a complete joke. Thomas Hauser just did another outstanding article uh, showing that and really exposing, further exposing USADA for the complete fraud that they are, as, at least in boxing, as far as their relationship with Al Heyman and PBC. Uh, so look, man, I don't know. I, th this could be another KO win here for Charlo. This, on paper, is the best opponent he has faced maybe in his career, certainly at middleweight, because he's only fought twice at middleweight against lower-level opposition, not even probably top 15 or 20. But again, Korobov, one fight in two years. That's the huge X factor here. Also on this card, heavyweight action, Dominic Brizel going up against a Puerto Rican heavyweight, Carlos Negron. Both of these guys only have one professional loss. Uh, Brazil is 19-1. and 
Negron is 20 in one. Brazil is six foot seven, 81 inch reach. Negron is six foot six, 83 inch reach. Uh, lives and fights out of Miami now. He's a Puerto Rican guy. Fought in the 2008 Olympics for Puerto Rico. A lot of his pro fights have been in Puerto Rico. I think most of them actually. So uh, a little bit of a step up in opposition for Negron for Brazil. He's been in there with some top guys. So let's see what this Puerto Rican kid has. If he has anything that we should be excited about, he should get pretty decisive win over Brazil. Uh, if the, if he's nothing, if he's more pretender than contender, Brazil gets this W. Also on this card, Terrell Goucher and Rancis Bartholome uh, making their comebacks from their first career losses in their last fight. Uh, Bartholome lost to Kirill Relic and Goucher lost to Erislandi Lara. So they're both looking to get in the win column in uh, showcase fights. And then we skip forward to the last weekend of the year, Sunday, December 30th over in Tokyo, Japan. And apparently this card has been picked up by ESPN+. We have a triple header. Uh, Matsuyuki Ito and Ken Shiro are defending their world titles. Ito is at 130 pounds, Shiro at 108. And also Tayuma Inoue, the brother of Naoya Inoue, uh, fighting for a vacant interim bantamweight title. So that is on December 30th over in Japan. And then Monday, December 31st, New Year's Eve in Macau, China, we have another uh, triple header. Donnie Nietes is fighting for a vacant super flyweight title. He should have a super flyweight title. He kind of got robbed, fought for one earlier this year. It was scored a draw. It shouldn't have been. Uh, Nietes should have won, uh, should have got the decision and got a title there. Either way, he's fighting for a vacant title again, the one that he should have got earlier this year when uh, he, he scored a draw. Hecky Budler is defending his 108-pound world title and Moyuti Mathailane defending his 112-pound title. So that is the uh, last big card of 2018 and what a freaking year it's been. We'll do some videos talking about all that later on over the next coming two weeks. So that's it for this week, guys, for episode 152. Remember, get over to iTunes. Please, please blow up the neutral corner on iTunes. Continue to do so. Let me know if you guys want me to talk more about the DAZN commentary crew. And let me know if you guys would be interested in maybe one last live Q&A slash end-of-year uh, awards kind of a, a video or something like that, all right? See you at the fights.